what's made it come back though, I think is, well, you know, it's, it's this new urban or urbanization movement, people living downtown and, and wanting to be, uh, you know, near, uh, walkable to, uh, the amenities and, and stores and art galleries and then be able to get a ferry to, to Seattle and, we need to think harder about if we want to develop individual and independent thinkers, people who really do think critically for themselves, then what are the conditions that will lead to that? And how do we set up school to ensure that that happens? Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and I'm your host, Benny Mathers, your producer, and we are here to give you another hopefully, really good program today, as we always try to do. So uh, who do we have on tap for today? We have two individuals that are really leading their communities in very different ways. One is actually in the state of Washington. One is for higher education across the country. The first guest today will be Wes Larson, and he's of a group of realtors over in the peninsula. When I say peninsula, I mean Bremerton. I think many times we get into our own worlds. And like, uh, for example, I know that I become Seattle-centric. Actually, I bought into a baseball team in Tacoma, the Tacoma Rainiers, the AAA affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. That brings me to Tacoma much more than I used to go. And I'm really enjoying the experience, going to Cheney and actually going into the city of Tacoma a lot more than I used to do. So, I started thinking of Bremerton, and I've ridden the ferry over there a couple times. I know there's a high-speed ferry that goes back and forth to Seattle. I haven't been on that. But the times I've gone over there, I sensed that some things were changing. And uh, i got to say that I didn't really think much of Bremerton, their waterfront, and what has been going on there. But it's getting better and better. And who better to talk to a guy like Wes Larson? who was born in Bremerton, went away, has come back, and I felt it would be good to talk to him, and I'm really glad I did. And that's why I kind of named the show today, What's Up? What's Going On in Bremerton? And as I say, there's a lot. So Wes Larson's going to be here in just a few moments. Then we have Jose Bowman. He wrote a book called Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers. And Frankly, I was not so excited about this interview because I thought it was going to be kind of a high-profile type of -of out-of-reach college type of interview, but I was wrong. He has some really down-to-earth, fundamental recommendations on how we can teach students. As a matter of fact, it's not really about the teacher teaching students. It's about the students absorbing and finding critical measures that they can change their behavior when they have to. We have to teach kids, even young adults and all of us, to think on their feet because the world is changing so much. So I'm not going to say anything more about that than what I've already said. I've kind of chopped it up a little bit. So he'll be on today as well. we got some Christmas music coming up. Um, Voices of Experience. What's it all about? We talk with people with experience in their fields. Uh, it airs on KKNW AM 1150, 3 o'clock p.m. on Wednesdays, and also on KIXI AM 880 on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. Then it's rebroadcast Sundays at 11 a.m. So back with my interview with Wes Larson in just a moment. 
When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Wes Larson was born in Bremerton and raised in Silverdale. He's an attorney with over 25 years' experience in international banking, real estate acquisition, investment, and development. He spent a decade in New York with the Bank of Austria and Vienna before returning back to his hometown. Since returning to the Pacific Northwest, Larson has focused on real estate. I've wondered, with all the growth and skyrocketing real estate prices in the greater Seattle area, how has this affected Bremerton? It had to in some way. So Wes is one of the principals in Sound West Group based in Bremerton, so I thought he would be a really good person to talk to about that. So I visited with him, and I asked him, what's going on in Bremerton? It turns out, a lot. You grew up in Bremerton, so you obviously yeah. have seen a lot of changes. So what makes mm-hmm. you excited right now about what's happening in Bremerton? Well, you know, Bremerton's long been the poster child for urban revitalization. And it's the classic story of the city that, that where everybody left uh, back in the 60s in the freeway culture and spread north to Silverdale and the shopping mall and suburban lifestyle. And the city's hollowed out in uh, uh, you know, what was once the, the thriving retail and business and uh, a medical center for Kitsap County and, and uh, uh, just very right away from Seattle just, just became a sort of a, a shell of itself with a lot of vacant buildings and, uh, you know, just a kind of a steady downward slow spiral through the you know, 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Uh, so, uh, you know, it used to be just this really thriving downtown. I remember growing up here as a kid, you know, We'd go cruising on Friday nights, and, and downtown Bremerton was a happening place. Uh, you know, and, and you go forward in the 90s, it's just uh, sort of like the back to the future where you come back and you see this kind of, uh, uh, you know, urban, uh, uh, you know, kind of run-down buildings and a lot of vacancies and, and uh, you know, light. So, but what's made it come back, though, I think is, well, you know, it's, it's this – new urban or urbanization movement, people living downtown and, and wanting to be, uh, you know, near, uh, walkable to, uh, the amenities and, and stores and art galleries and then be able to get a ferry to, to Seattle and, and, um, uh, and then the ferry service to Seattle has sort of made it into a bedroom community, but, uh, uh for Seattle and, and then the 30 minute boat, the fast ferry, which the County passed back in 2016, 
uh, moved us halfway closer to Seattle, and that's been a big success. And so having that fast ferry uh, together with um, uh, what's really been an incredibly expanding workforce or job base in the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard uh, has really driven the community and, and brought it back. And, and But really, you know, it's been, there's just a commitment, I think, a spirit of the people who live in Bremerton that uh, there's a lot of history and tradition here. And, and people uh, love the community and support it. And, and I think that's, you know, that's evident if you, you see how active people are and involved in, in you know, the downtown. Uh, we're building uh, 600 apartments downtown and, and altogether, I think, about uh, $200 million worth of private investment on underway right now. We're in it in a big way. Seems like Bremerton is in a position to succeed in a very big way. It sounds like it already is, but it timing is everything. Like, for example, you go back and the reason it fell into disrepair were reasons, like you suggested, that the urbanization was kind of going a different direction. Suburban were growing, like downtown Seattle really suffered yep, during yep, that time, and most yep. urban centers did. But it seems like what was working against Bremerton then is now working in its favor because it's more affordable than Seattle and a lot of other areas. And all those things are, I think, really helping Bremerton gather some significant momentum. You know, Bremerton back in the 40s and during the, the big Second World War, it, it uh, population actually grew to, to almost 70,000. And it was it was like fifteen thousand yeah. or something. I read that just recently, and then it went to seventy thousand, like overnight yeah. almost. Seventy, yes, yeah, in the span of five or six years. Wow! And at that point, it was you know Seattle was a hundred thousand, just for perspective. So Bremerton was a boom town, and that continued after the war. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, that that kind of classic it happened in all cities. People moved outside of cities, and 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 that that was the. Suburban flight, I guess you call it, and and so that happened here in Bremerton, and and but but yeah, that that trend has turned, and there's there's a lot of tip and uh, trend trendy uh, locales in in downtown Bremerton, and and really thriving arts community and and the food scene, and and uh, I think you know I, I like to call that having lived in New York City for ten years back in the '90s, I, I I often compare it, I call it Seattle's Brooklyn. It's got that gritty kind of you know, blue collar shipyard uh, feel to it, you know, and then, and then it's, it's, it's got the kind of hip culture at the same time. You know, one of the things that we're doing downtown, it's just a lot of fun is, uh, is Quincy Jones square and uh, named for Quincy Jones, who, who actually uh, grew up his early years in Bremerton, uh, moving here from Chicago, moved to Bremerton back in the, in the forties during that boom time. And his father worked in the shipyard and he grew up and discovered music in Bremerton and went on to Garfield high school. But, uh, so we've got a downtown public square going in called Quincy Jones square, the entire city block, which will have a paving system to be black and white piano keyboard, 88 keys. Uh, that project is fully funded and, and will be built next year. We're doing the sort of the private development around that. So we, we remodeled and, and, uh, rejuvenated the old Roxy Theater, and then the old Sears department store and four dealership buildings on Quincy Square have been uh, completely uh, rebuilt and, and turned into apartments, restaurants, uh, you know, mixed-use buildings. But yeah, if you go down the waterfront now, it's it's all been uh, you know revitalized in the last uh, 15 years or so. It's just completely redone. 
It seems like there's a lot of momentum there, like we've talked about. But what effect did COVID have on the progression of Bremerton? Did it stall it seriously, or is it just a bump in the road and you're moving on? For us, it was a big bump in the road. I mean, we're, we're, we're developing Marina Square, which is on the waterfront and right overlooks the marina. And that's a two-tower project. And, and when COVID hit in February of 20 or March of 20, uh, we were just starting on the vertical part of building a hotel. So that was like the worst possible timing um, to build a hotel in, in uh, you know, just as COVID is, uh, is, is underway. And so obviously getting financing was practically impossible for that. So we had to pivot and, uh, uh, and we, we are now building uh, what, what's called uh, workforce housing for the shipyard. Uh, extended stay uh, for for the, the naval base contractors, uh, and and that's another hospitality product. But it's but anyway, it 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 was a big impact. We had nine months on the on the sidelines. And, yeah. You feel you're getting your legs back. You have momentum oh, yeah. coming back. Okay, yeah, we're, good to hear. Yeah, we're we're uh, finishing that project in in July of uh, 22, and so public open square between two buildings and right over the marina, and the last piece of undeveloped land along the waterfront here. When you look down the road, let's say 2030, and that may be too far a projection. I mean, there's like guys like Pete mm-hmm. Carroll said, he only thinks in five-year intervals, and I mm-hmm. understand that. But your vision, yeah. because you've been so much involved in your entire life in the growth mm-hmm. of Bremerton, the ups and downs and things, your vision in looking, let's say, at 2030, what would you like to see Bremerton look like if you walked into town? Well, I, 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 would, I would like to see it be a really super active, thriving, walkable community. Uh, people on the streets, vendors, restaurants, art galleries, street fairs, you know, Quincy, the Quincy Square, the northwest version of Beale Street. And, uh, and, and people going back, you know, coming back and forth from the Seattle waterfront, which is just going to be a huge deal too. When it opens up to the, to the Bremerton waterfront, we'll see, uh, a cruise ship tied up at, at, on the boardwalk. And we've seen that already over the last couple of years. And there'll be people on tours here and, and, uh, the whole tradition of, of downtown Bremerton and the history, you know, we can also, uh, tout. So I, I, I really see it as a, as a really super active urban community with a real close connection uh, to Seattle. Good enough. I like the partnership with Seattle. I mean, we work together. I mean, it's like there's real pros to have Seattle here because you got the Kraken we talked about earlier. But then you have so much over there to offer too. And so it's a kind of a a family in that sense. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, anything yeah. else and before to, we go? Tacoma. Excuse me. Yeah. And Tacoma, no, of course. No, that's it. And hey, let, let's not forget <laughs> yeah. Tacoma. Not forget Tacoma. <laughs> yes, it's the Seattle, Tacoma, Bremerton. Yeah. That's the new triangle. Yeah. Thank you to Wes Larson. If you would like to visit Wes, you can uh, email him at wes. That's Wes wes at soundwestgroup.com. Wes at soundwestgroup.com. I had the opportunity to visit with Charles Royer last week to ask him to reflect on his years in office since he has been away from the political arena. Today is the first of a two-part series on Mr. Royer's reflections. He served three terms as mayor of Seattle between 1978 
1990. He then became director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard University and returned to Seattle last year and is now a faculty member in the School of Public Affairs and Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of Washington. I asked Mr. Royer, how has government changed since he was mayor? I used to go to Washington all the time because Senator Magnuson was there. And Senator Magnuson was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And so I would go to Washington and uh, get grants and think I was doing my job. And Maggie always gave us pretty much what we wanted. The relationship between the federal government and the local governments, in this case of Seattle, uh, changed pretty dramatically when Maggie left. We lost a lot of uh, power in the Senate, a lot of authority, but at the same time, other changes were taking place that made that power less relevant. When I really got smart as mayor, like maybe the last 10 minutes I was mayor in <laughs> my 12 years, um, it occurred to me that, that my real resources, my real friends, my allies, my tools to get something done for the city were really the resources around the city, the suburban jurisdictions, the business community. I think the big change is that there's nobody telling you what to do. There are a lot of people who are telling you in these days in politics how you should live your life, but nobody's really telling you much what to do with these big problems at home of uh, the environment and, and crime and uh, um, economic growth and development and managing growth and transportation. They're, they're not telling you really how to do that anymore. What was the biggest surprise as being mayor of Seattle in terms of the positive? Well, one of our biggest surprises in the election was that we won. <laughs> We found that to be very positive, but it was a big surprise. Another uh, very positive surprise to me was the level of quality of people who were in the government. Because you, you know, you hear about bureaucracies and you hear about lazy people and people leaning on their shovels. But I ran into an awful lot of people who could have been making an awful lot more money and been get and been given more respect by being in lots of other professions and lots of other lines of work. But they were dedicated and uh, wonderful people to work with. How about an area that wasn't so pleasant? There were people that I just felt I didn't want to listen to anymore. And people deserve, you know, <laughs> the full attention of their mayor. So I think um, I got to the point where I didn't feel I could bring the full energy to the job. And that was a disappointment to me. Cause I, and I didn't really want to stay mayor forever. I knew that you couldn't do that. My original plan was to serve eight years and get out. But... Um, I obviously didn't get enough done in eight years, and so I decided to, to try to stay another four years and, and really get something done. I'm glad I did because we accomplished some good things. But I think the disappointment was that I, I got, and I was in, in journalism for a long time before I became mayor, and I got pretty cynical at some point in journalism. But I did, that surprised me when that happened to me in my last couple of years as mayor. In being in journalism and going into elected politics and becoming mayor of a city, really doesn't happen that often. How did that help you in serving there? Coming from the journalism background, where kind of you're the watchdog, and now you're in the seat. Well, one of my political heroes, Tom McCall, who was uh, governor of Oregon and uh, had the same job with the same television company I had. He was news analyst at KGW in Portland before he got into public life, and I was news analyst here at King. He said, there ought to be more journalists in politics. You shouldn't just leave it to the lawyers and the teachers. He said, because journalists, the best of them, um, are pretty idealistic people. That's one of the reasons they get into journalism. Secondly, if they've had full and rich careers, they've been pretty good students of, of government. They've, been, they've learned about the processes and the way they work, and they've learned about the people, and they know the people, and they know, what is, they know about motivations, and they know about pressures. So the other thing they have, journalists, uh, that helps them in politics, is a very good sense of smell.
they know what's wrong. Also, you know, I was in television. It's very easy to get a swelled head in television. Everybody does it who's on the television. People think you're smart. People think you got a great job, and they recognize you in the supermarket. So you get this big head. So my head was already pretty good size by the time I got into the mayor's office, so it couldn't grow much more. But I also knew that um, from my experience in television that today's anchorman is tomorrow's forgotten guy. So today's mayor is tomorrow's forgotten guy. So I think it helped me with balance in my own life. I then asked him, as director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard, what he feels about the future leaders of America. Well, the mission of the Institute that I ran, um, it was started by Bobby Kennedy in 1967 as a memorial to his brother. And the mission of the Institute, very simply put, is to inspire young people to get into public life, particularly elected politics. I was um, inspired by the kids I met. Um, I don't know of, uh, that I have seen a more idealistic uh, lot. I don't think I've seen a more inspired bunch of people in terms of their plans for work, what they want to get out of their lives, what they want to contribute in their communities, what they want to do with their lives. They're just remarkable kids. What doesn't translate at Harvard <coughs> is that used to. It's that inspiration, that idealism. Uh, it doesn't translate into a desire to go to work for the government, particularly the federal government. Most of our students were interested in getting into the private nonprofit sector or doing something internationally or doing something um, and, and the most tolerant lot, in some cases it has gone to political correctness, but the most tolerant group of people, young people, and I found this going around the country on this foundation thing, we visited 13 cities, race is tearing us apart in the country, but the kids are far ahead uh, of the rest of the society on the issue of race and dealing with it and understanding it and living with it and trying to prosper from it. They're way ahead of the politicians. They're way ahead of most older Americans. Uh, and it's a great hope for us that they are. So I found that to be um, really inspirational and good news on the campus. Is there a possibility we'll see uh, Charles Warrior back uh, seeking elective office in the future? Uh, I certainly don't have any plans to do that. Um, while I had a good experience, um, I don't know that I could be elected today, even if I wanted to. I don't think I could say the stuff that people are saying to get elected in politics today. For example, I always liked taxes. Uh, I always thought the government was a positive instrument. I always thought it was there to be used by people uh, in a competition uh, for ideas of how to use it. Those aren't the issues that people are talking about today. Um, so I just don't, there's just not the, there, it's not the right thing for me, and it's not the right, it's certainly not the right time in politics for somebody like me to come along. I mean, I'd last 20 seconds against that barrage of 30-second commercials who would go through and, and point out how I raised taxes every year I was mayor. And it's true, and I'd do it again former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer, and now on the faculty at the University of Washington. I would like to thank Mr. Royer for sharing his insights over the last couple of weeks on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. My guest is Jose Antonio Bowen, and he has been in education for many, many years. Matter of fact, he was president of a college. And uh, he has really taken a different look at how we teach our children and also young adults. He wrote a book called Teaching Change, 
how to develop thinkers using relationships, figure out their roles from a teacher-student relationship. We talk about that in the interview. He says the primary goal of education is to teach students to think so they can become inquisitive, lifelong learners, and that is more important today than it has ever been. Is your book about really the more of the focus has been on teaching, but your book, if I can just oversimplify it, is more about the students and how they learn? Well, yeah, it's about human learning. It's also about the difficulty that all humans have in changing their mind. So, yeah, specifically, I'm interested in how do we set up conditions where teachers can help students to learn what I think is a vital skill, but quite a lot of the book is about, you know, the economy, about democracy, about human evolution, that sort of thing. Why don't you uh, go into some of the detail on that, what uh, you're trying to drive across in your book? I I think most of us know that change is hard. You know, anyone who's tried to, you know, quit smoking or lose weight or had an argument at Thanksgiving with a relative (laughs) knows that, uh, that, that all types of change are hard, and certainly changing your mind is the hardest. And so, Sometimes as teachers, we tend to be a little naive about this and think, right, school is set up so that if I give you information, right, well, here's, here's, here are some new facts. And we just kind of sit back and assume the magic will happen. That's not what happens. And so I've tried to learn from people who get you to floss or to vote more or quit smoking um, about the techniques that are used and the conditions that are required uh, to help people learn this critical skill. So school was set up at a different time, right? Really on the factory model um, that, you know, we're going to plug people in and give them information and expect certain outcomes. But two big things have changed. One is we know a lot more about the brain and human evolution, and I'll talk a bit about that. But the other is that the economy and the world have changed, that the idea of having a job for life, everything that you need to know I can give you in school is now laughable. But not that long ago, that was the case, right? The pace of new knowledge creation was a lot slower a generation or two or certainly five or six generations ago. But students today face what I call the learning economy, where the real value of graduates to employers is not what they know so much, but what they can learn. And we hear from employers all the time that what they really want are people who are agile and flexible, uh, not set in their ways and able to learn new things because, of course, most of the jobs that students in school today will have have not yet been invented. So, you know, a major in computer science seems like it's reasonable, but it's really a major in the iPhone 1, right? That four years from now, you know, what you've learned is going to be obsolete, or at least some of it will be obsolete, right? There, there will be a new iPhone. There will be new uh, things to learn. So, so all of that, to me makes it seem that we need to rethink what we do in the in education k-12 through as well as higher ed and that while content is still important it's not enough it's it's not sufficient by itself and i'd add that you know i think that the 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 trials and tribulations of democracy in the last few years have certainly emphasized that democracy was also set up on the ability for people to analyze new information and to change their minds and so for all of those reasons, uh, we need to think harder about if we want to develop individual and independent thinkers, people who really do think critically for themselves, then what are the conditions that will lead to that? And how do we set up school to ensure that that happens? And that's really what the book is about. Mm. So it is written primarily for teachers, but I am also thinking about students and about parents 
uh, and about employers and about people who run our democracy. I mean, I've been working on this for a while, and so I was a, a dean twice before that. And so, um, and of course, I was a teacher before that, and I, w- I was a music teacher, uh, which I think probably had something to do with my thinking about this, because, right, we call it a conservatory because we conserve traditions. And so a lot of my colleagues, when I first started off as a music teacher, said, well, I want to, you know, I want my students to be recognizable as my students. I want them to sound like me. And I said, well, I, I don't. I think I want all my students to sound like themselves and not to sound like me. So my real job is, A, helping students find their own voice, right, helping them figure out who they are and who they want to be. But the other is that I think as a teacher, you want to make yourself obsolete in some kind of perverse way, right, that um, that when you're a student, I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you this piece is ready for performance. It's not. This one needs more work. You need to study harder on this. Uh, this is a fact. That's not a fact. Ultimately, I want students to be able to make those evaluations and judgment themselves, right? They need to be able to know this is a fact. That's not a fact. This is true without having to come back to the teacher. So in that sense, uh, I want to make myself obsolete by having my students be self-regulated enough that they can right, speak for themselves, figure things out for themselves, etc. So as a teacher, uh, I was, I've always been interested uh, in these ideas. But certainly in running a college and, and, and running schools, I looked at the old three R's, right, reading, writing, arithmetic, and thought, well, okay, content is necessary, but not sufficient. That what really makes this thing go are new three R's, that learning is about relationships, resilience, and reflection, what I call the new three R's, and that is, in fact, what we what we built the, the, the model at Goucher College around. So, uh, diversity, for example, um, right? All colleges want to have a, a more diverse population, but just bringing together different people is not enough, uh, right? Collective intelligence doesn't happen by itself. In fact, what tends to happen is group polarization, right? That people retreat to their quarter, the corners, they encounter ideas, and they 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 congregate with people who think like them, and and, and other sorts of bad things happen. So, well, yeah, I, when I just interject something do, here to that point. Uh, you know, when I was going through the university system, it was all trying to get diversity and integrated dorms. And I've just seen recently some startling statistics of how many universities and colleges are going to all African-American dorms and uh, white dorms and things. It looks to me that we're taking a huge step back in that area. Yeah, I, I don't know if there are actually colleges who were, who were, who were doing that. There, the data is this, that um, that Historically, black colleges and universities do have a great track record. They do more with less than other institutions historically. Um, it's, it's also the case that putting people together without the right sort of training and equipment and thought can backfire. It's also the case that you shouldn't expect, you know, minority students to educate majority students about what's going on in their lives. But having a roommate who's of a different race or religion uh, is still one of the best predictors of um, more tolerance and and having more friends later in life, of having more friends of a different ethnic group later in life. So, so students who, um, because right there's there's social influence. So, uh, and this is all we know. We have also about international students, right? That international students who live with domestic students, uh, that both sides can benefit. But it can also be a train wreck, right? You have to prepare people and provide 
the the condition. So the where I was going previously was with collective intelligence, right? That when we put a group of diverse people together, we'd like to think that good things can happen. And in fact, the data tells us that diverse groups of people in the workplace and in class um, can do better work than homogeneous groups, but they take longer. They also have more conflict. And in fact, we now know that's causal. But the reason diverse groups do better work is because people question each other's assumptions. They say, well, you know, that's not how it worked in my neighborhood. I have a different idea. Right. But in order for that to work, people have to feel safe. Right. Which is why my first R is relationships. People have to feel like the group has an identity that is safe to work together. And then I can say, you know, you know, Bob, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm not sure that's true. That's a difficult thing to do. And so if you don't do that. Um, then you start to feel resentful, and oh, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just a number. I'm a token, et cetera. So that's why in the business world we talk not just about diversity, uh, and not just about equity, and not even just about inclusion, but about belonging. Now that that when workers or students feel that they belong, they're more likely to speak up, to contribute, and to disagree, and to create conflict. And it turns out that the conflict and disagreement is, in fact, the cause of the better results. And that's true both of worker productivity, uh, you know, better products, and it's also true of better discussion. So, you know, on a practical basis, when you're having that conflict with, you know, uh, with, your, with your, your Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving, the first thing to do is to not say, well, well here are some facts. <laughs> Here are 30 reasons why you're wrong. In fact, the first thing you do is to start with empathy and say, okay, so tell me why those things, why those values are important to you. Let me, let me really understand uh, what, what's, what's there. But another technique that I use in discussion is to try to find the underlying tension. So most people will say, well, I value, I'm really interested in love, or I'm interested in freedom, or I'm interested in the collective good, or whatever it is. Okay, so tell me about that. But then tell me what happens if that's all we have, right? What happens in the extreme case? Suppose all we had was freedom. Suppose everybody was free to do whatever they wanted all the time, didn't have to obey traffic signals. You know, what would, what would happen then? And most people then say, oh, okay, well, there's, there's probably some communal value that's opposed to that. And we realize, oh, what we're really trying to do in society or in this discussion is to balance conflicting ideas or manage attention rather than solve a problem. And Typically, school sets us up to think there's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, we have to solve this problem and get the right answer. But there are a lot of things in life, uh, like um, freedom and justice or liberty and equity, that are in fact tensions to manage. They are things that are in slight conflict, and you can't have only one, you have to have both. So learning to live with ambiguity is a key part of school and we often set it up so in fact we do the opposite that we right, we teach students about right answers and about collecting more right answers if that makes some sense oh it sure does i, I see where you're going with that you're, you're, a lot of things you're saying here i'm gonna have to uh run this again to comprehend a lot of what you're suggesting here but when you get to that point yes um i would agree with that the ambiguity part and that making those determinations going forward, people are uncomfortable with that. So for a lot of us, right, again, if, if you've spent 12 years in school, you know, learning that two plus two equals four and that I have to have right answers all the time, then when you get to, to 
more complicated problems, which, by the way, is also true in math. People think math is, you know, the science of exact. Well, no, it's in science and in math, ambiguity is key. Understanding that we change our minds. We, we, here's what we know today, but we have to run an experiment. In fact, right, I think we, we lost an opportunity in some ways with, with COVID to recognize that what science really does is test hypotheses. That the reason science works is because it's ambiguous and that we keep an open mind to new information. So one of the things that I think is really important in school is that instead of telling students, well, this is the right answer, this is what happens when A and B happens, that we say, well, this is what we used to think. This is what we thought in the 50s, this is what we thought in the 70s, this is what we thought in the 19th century. But then we discovered that. And so, you know, we, we no longer, uh, you know, draw blood from people who have a fever. But that's what we thought 400 years ago, um, because that opens the door to students to recognize, oh, what you're teaching me has changed, that what you would have taught me 100 years ago was different. And so maybe there's a new discovery that I will make. And that's really motivating for students to recognize that that knowledge is, is fluid uh, in fact, there's a wonderful experiment where we took textbooks and we added the words generally, normally, and usually. But we made it, we made it less definitive, right? Instead of saying, well, this is what happens when, uh, you know, this situation occurs, we said, well, this is usually what happens. So think about what your brain does, right? If I tell you, okay, in every circumstance that you need to give CPR, make sure the patient is lying down. Well, okay, I can forget that because it's always the same. But if I say, when you're about to give CPR, you need to start by hopefully putting the patient lying down. Generally, you would do that. Well, generally, you mean there's some times when I wouldn't? Well, sure, if it's a person who's too big for you to move them and they're sitting in a chair and you want to save their life, right? So now the condition, right, the ambiguity and the conditionality of that make me think, oh, that's important. I have to remember that. So your brain actually remembers things better in a textbook that have the words normally, usually, generally in it. So when we give things in with conditions, your brain pays more attention to it because your your emotions are wired to pay more attention to some things and not others. Yeah, you just can't put it in automatic pilot. Yeah, when you're exactly when you're in automatic pilot, you know, that's exactly what happens. You forget stuff, which is why when you're you you think that 9.99 is the same thing as, you know, you don't you think oh that's $9, not $10 because you're an autopilot or what we call system one that you're just making quick decisions because there's there's too much information in the world for you to think about everything deeply how are your um a lot of your theories being uh received i mean this looks like a pretty long life work for you and are you seeing people embrace what you're doing in universities because my experience has been i'm involved in higher education as a volunteer and things, but I find that universities many times are the slowest in adopting change because of the bureaucracy and the steps that need to be taken. What are you finding? Yeah, no, certainly large organizations of all types, uh, universities included, but medicine, (laughs) you know, companies of all sorts, large organizations don't like to change because humans don't like to change. And so people defend turf. They they worry about what will happen to their job if these new things Ten happen. Year. But that's absolutely true. Yeah, all of that. No, that's all. All of that slows it down. And so you're right. 
you know, universities have a reputation for being um, rather progressive and liberal places, but in fact, um, they are very conservative in the nature of, right, we still do things the way we did in the Middle Ages, right? We still dress up in the funny hats and robes. So we'll just leave it at the funny hats. I never thought about that when I go to a college and at the end, the ceremony probably does go back about five centuries. But anyhow, the book is called Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Obviously, he's thought a great deal about this, and I think he made some really compelling points. So all you need to do is Google Jose Bowden, and that would be J-O-S-E-B-O-W-E-N dash Teaching Chain. And the information will come up as to how you get this book and uh, you find out more about his background. One more time, if you've been listening to this show, you've heard this many times, but I do want to make it clear, I am not paid any promotional fees for any books or any subject that I talk about on Voices of Experience. I subscribe to Entrepreneurial Magazine because I think there's a lot of good tips in there about what it takes to run a business. If you've been in business for a long time, it's very helpful. If you're just starting a business, it's very helpful there too. For example, it talks about franchises sometimes. And uh, is that something that you should consider if you want to go into business for yourself? I think there are pros and cons. I didn't do it, but I can see the pluses for going into a franchise. And one of the major factors is that running a business, a lot about it is repetitive, and it's doing the same thing over and over again and doing it successfully. And franchises have been tested, and so they have a procedure that you are really buying into, their name and maybe their um, graphics and all the other elements that go in to running a successful franchise. Now, you have to really look at that very closely because there are some franchises that are very successful and some that are not. And uh, you just have to determine that for yourself. Anyhow, there was an article about four factors from childhood that are strong indicators of success. It was courtesy, again, of Entrepreneur Magazine, and this was written by Blake Johnson. Number one, it's the company you keep. The people that you hang around with are so important, and that really starts when you're a child. The more you talk to someone and the more you spend time with that individual, the more your viewpoints will sync up with them. So if you spend time with people who are not motivated like you, less intelligent than you, then you will probably be dragged down. Bottom line is you probably will not reach your potential. So I agree with that. The company you keep is extremely important. Number two, education. Now, when Blake says education is really important, he's not talking about a college education or a private education. He's talking about early education and all the engagements and enthusiasm that you have with friends about learning. But really, a major influence here are your parents and your parental support at home is supremely important and that can inspire you for the lifelong passion of learning. Number three, accountability. Have you ever heard the adage that the person with the most excuses is often the most successful? Of course you haven't. 
because it's the opposite of the truth. People who constantly blame others for the problems that they have are never the people that are willing to face and overcome those obstacles. And number four, self-motivation. Most entrepreneurs I know, and this is Blake, saw a problem in an industry or a hole in the marketplace and thought, hey, I can fill that hole. And he goes on to say, many entrepreneurs think, if no one else is going to do something about it, I suppose I will be the one to do something about it myself. The entrepreneurial mindset demands the ability to tackle problems that other people find too intimidating to even begin to attempt. That's part of it. But I think really what struck me about what he said, and it's one of my eight myths about going into business for yourself, and that is follow your passion and the money will follow. I disagree with that. Um, I think your passion, if you want to go into business, is becoming an entrepreneur. Now, what you do to stay as an entrepreneur is actually secondary to that. Does that make sense? Um, People disagree with me about this, but I believe strongly that if you do think as an entrepreneur, and they're the ones that essentially find a niche and solve a problem, and that's kind of what Blake has been saying in this column here, and they are the most successful ones. If anybody has a different opinion on this, give a call to the Voices of Experience hotline, And that's 425-653-1166-425-653-1166. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.
A true Seattle baseball legend, Ed O'Banny, is with us this morning on Profiles of Experience. He grew up in Seattle, attending Queen Anne High School, and had the first hit, first stolen base, and scored the first run at Six Seattle Stadium that stood in the heart of Rainier Valley between 1939 and 1978. He was a player on three championship Seattle Rainier baseball teams of the Pacific Coast League. He was also manager and general manager in later years of the Seattle Rainiers. He was also the director of sales for the Seattle Pilots during their one and only major league year in the Pacific Northwest. Good morning, Mr. Vanny, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. Do you think Seattle proved it was a baseball town last fall? I've always said that Seattle was a baseball town from back in the golden areas of 1939, 40, and 41, when Mr. Sick took over the franchise and built a new stadium out there in Rainier Valley called Sick Stadium. I've always said if you give Seattle a winner, the people would go out in the cow pasture to watch it play. What did you make as a player for the Rainiers in 1939? In 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot, but I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, what do you think about player salaries today? Well, I, I think the player salaries might be a little out of line, but if they keep getting out of line, even if we build a new stadium, they're going to have to scale a house seats, prices of the seats to accommodate the salaries that are going to come in because those uh, those suites up there, not everybody's going to be able to go up there and sit in those suites. You've got to think of the poor soul that brings a wife and uh, four kids to a ball game. They've got to have seats for those people to come. They're the best salesmen you got around. And if they can't go to the ball game, who's going to go? Do you think the uh, baseball strike permanently hurt baseball? I think it did, and I certainly hope that it doesn't ever happens again. If they do, if they have another baseball strike, they might as well pack up and find a good padlock for these doors on these stadiums because the people will not put up with it. Why do you think that baseball is so enduring and so popular? Well, it's always been a popular game because it's a simple game. The rules haven't changed in 100 years except for this DH that they have, and uh, it's the same confines. You're still playing the same game with the bat and ball and the glove. And the fundamentals of the game are still the same. If you want to bunt, you got to be able to bunt a guy over. you got to hit and run or a stolen base. The only thing that I'd say that it's upgraded to baseball is probably the playing fields that they have today. And probably the uh, uniforms. You played in those wool suits that were, I imagine, extremely hot. We'd go into Sacramento. The temperature would be 115, 118, 120, and you play in those wool suits. And, boy, it was hot. Yeah, we had a 200-game schedule in those days. We played uh, uh, a week in each town, which was, a, which was a good thing because you could unpack your clothes and you could set up house like you wanted, you know, and you'd be going to the ballpark each day and you'd probably face one pitcher on Tuesday and you'd see him again on Sunday or Saturday night, which was very helpful. And you learned uh, to set up schedules on your own little scorecard, how this guy pitched me and got me out the time before. How am I going to hit him again on Saturday night or Sunday? Well, what was your favorite team that you played on and why? Well, my favorite team that I played on here in Seattle was the 1940 team. As a team and as a unit, they played together with good teamwork. And to me, the 1940 team was probably the best one that, that I had here. And I also was associated with many other pennant winners here in Seattle. Baseball legend, Ed Vanny, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. Thank you, Paul.
Well, that's it for today. It's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Wes Larson and Jose Bowman, and also, of course, to former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer, and to the late, great Ido Vanni, who was Mr. Baseball in Seattle in interviews that I conducted over 20 years ago. Voices of Experience is simulcast on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150 on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m., and then rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Keep your comments short, and I will try to get them on the air. That's assuming you want to have your comments on the air. If not, let me know. That's 425-653-1166. Voices of Experience. What's it all about? It's about people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, adventure, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship or solopreneurship. And that is running a business, not totally by yourself. We don't live in a vacuum. We need a lot of help, but it's keeping your business at a very small level and letting it grow slowly over time. I just heard something recently that uh, I think sums up pretty much what it's like running a business, and you heard about an overnight success. Well, this person said an overnight success takes about 10 years. I really agree with that. And what drives this show? Experience is our best coach. Now, for another show that I think you will really enjoy that airs right here on Kixie is Reigniting You with Lisa Downs, and it airs Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m., as I said, right here on Kixie. AM 880, if you were looking to make a career move, whether staying in the traditional workforce, considering retiring or semi-retiring, or maybe starting your own business, tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs, Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m. Quote of the week, it's better to walk alone than with a crowd going the wrong direction. Diane Grant. My name is Paul Casey. Thanks for listening.